and welcome back to our podcast series from the High Tech Center. We are a National Training and Technical Assistance Center developed and operated by John Snow Inc. and Westat to support health centers fully optimize their electronic health record and health IT systems. In this series, we highlight people and teams doing innovative work supporting health centers recover from the challenges posed by the COVID-19 pandemic, and we explore how the promise of digital and health IT tools can help our patients in health centers. I'm Emma and Sarah, clinical advisor for the High Tech Center. In this episode, you have the chance to listen in on a conversation between High Tech's training and technical assistance advisor, Natalie Truesdell, and Dr. Ryan Jelenic, medical director of telehealth and access at Hennepin Healthcare, as they talk about the value of technology and telehealth for advancing equity in health centers. This is a packed conversation, and Natalie and Dr. Jelenic cover a wide range of topics from physician training to digital navigation. I have no doubt that everyone who listens will be able to take away big ideas and actionable steps. What I found most helpful from this conversation is the challenge or the emphasis of continually reorienting to our chief goal in healthcare delivery. Whether it's from describing digital access as a super social determinant of health, thinking critically about the training to use a technology rather than being critical of the technology itself, or considering the pre-scheduled visit as inequitable, Dr. Jelenic is doing the important work of reframing and urging us to consider how we can rethink care delivery truly around our patients' needs. The question becomes, how do we provide care in a way that makes it easier, not harder, for patients to integrate care into their lives, rather than penalizing patients for when the systems that we built don't work? I'm excited to think that this episode may have challenged your thinking as well as mine. Hello, my name is Natalie Truesdell, and I am the Training and Technical Assistance Advisor for the High Tech Center. And today we're really pleased to have our guest, Dr. Ryan Jelenic from Hennepin Healthcare with us today to talk about the value of technology and telehealth for advancing health equity in health centers. Um, Dr. Jelenic is the medical director for the telemedicine and access at Hennepin Healthcare, and he attended medical school at the Arizona College of Osteopathic Medicine and did his internal medicine residency and a clinical informatics fellowship at Hennepin Healthcare in Minneapolis. We're excited to talk to him today because his team recently published a report on evidence-based roadmap for the provision of more equitable telemedicine with that in mind, trying to prevent further health disparities in communities that are made particularly vulnerable during the coronavirus pandemic. So thank you, Ryan, for joining us today to speak about technological advancements and changes that affect the delivery and efficiency in healthcare and how these lessons can be translated, in particular for our clinicians and providers working in the safety net environment. So we're just so glad to have you. We'd love for you to start by just telling us a little bit about what your experience has been working in a health center environment, what brought you to working in health centers? Yeah. Well, Natalie, thank you for having me. It's uh, it's a pleasure to get to talk about this topic and, you know, the audience that high tech brings to the table, I think is something that's great. I think it's, it's an area of medicine that's just growing more and more, the, the kind of encompassing technology into how we deliver healthcare uh, and making sure that there are some standards involved and, and then making sure we're all pointing the right direction together. So thank you for, for joining or having me join with you. A little bit about my history in terms of health equity work. 
uh, it's always just been something that's been really interesting to me in terms of how people can have such different experiences with healthcare. Um, I think that we are starting to see more and more throughout society and healthcare in particular, how um, there becomes a point where it really starts to look like a dichotomous experience in terms of healthcare delivery and access to healthcare. And that's just something I've always been interested in, whether it's been in this country or in other countries, and then particularly around the, the folks that typically have the hardest time accessing healthcare are typically the ones that need it the most. And so I've always been driven towards that, um, both from a, a human level and a person level, but also a systems level. Uh, and so that's really where a lot of my work has been you know, focused over both residency and, and fellowship and now uh, in my faculty position at Hennepin Healthcare. Can you talk about how clinical informatics entered the picture in equity for you? Um, not yeah. every uh, clinician specializes <laughs> in clinical informatics. Why were you drawn to that? Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of a funny story. I really fell into clinical informatics. I didn't think I really knew anything about clinical informatics about halfway through residency. It's not something that I had heard of as a specialty that clinicians could go into. Um, you know, I, I really thought I was going into critical care uh, up till probably halfway through my second year of internal medicine residency. Wow. I love the ICU. I love being there. Um, some of the things that I really liked about critical care were having to synthesize a bunch of data really quickly and then making a decision on it, but an informed decision. Um, and then, you know, just the fast pace of things, the fact that things were always dynamic and always changing. And then if I extrapolate that into kind of this, uh, I don't know if I'd call it obsession, but uh, I, I'm really just a dork at heart who loves technology and loves the pace of change when it comes to new technologies and how they impact just society in general, but especially how it impacts healthcare. And so I kind of developed this reputation for myself in med school and residency as that guy who would really stick his head out when it came to anything around technology, whether it was how do we make this thing in uh, our EHR work better for doctors or how do we think about incorporating a piece of technology into patient care delivery? And so that was, uh, you know, the the reputation I was building for myself. And then the opportunity came when uh, our chief academic officer and uh, soon to be program director for the clinical informatics fellowship, uh, they approached me and said, you know, you seem like a guy who might be interested in this thing called informatics. And so we started talking about what that entailed. And I kind of had a, a moment of wow, this sounds like right in my wheelhouse. And so it turned into something I read a little bit more about and started to meet with other people who uh, carry the title of clinical informaticist. And I quickly found that, you know, you can take that passion for technology and that passion for systems level thinking, combine it with your skill set and experience as a physician and really start to impact change for healthcare systems. And then at a, at a really patient-centered level of care delivery, you know, and I, I take those kind of thoughts with me as I practice still today. How can I better engage with individual patients when it comes to the technology that they need to succeed as a patient? And uh, putting all that together, it was a pretty easy decision for me to transition what I was thinking previously around clinical, criti or critical care into uh, a fellowship in clinical informatics. So 
it was it was a fun journey and it kind of fell right in my lap and I'm really glad that it did. Oh, that's it sounds super interesting. I feel like we could do another session just talking about that field with you yeah. and others. Um, I, I'm eager to know more about the training for that. But for today's conversation, um, I want to ask, you know, it, it, even just your recent comments about why you got into this, it, it seems you you are a systems thinker. Um, and we commonly accept that there are technology barriers for a lot of patients. Um, and that it, it really is a, a a barrier for, for the patients, but also for providers. Um, just putting kind of that systems lens to your thinking, and, and you can take this question in a lot of different directions. What are you thinking about most often in terms of barriers um, for folks to really engage with technology? And um, what are the implications for that in terms of how um, technology barriers are prohibiting impact and access to care? Yeah. No, it's really an important question in that it's kind of starting to define where I, I see my career trajectory going around the idea of, I used to think that everything revolves around if you get the right technology out there, things will happen, right? And so there's this kind of triad in clinical informatics where it's technology, people, and process. And I always used to think of it as very lopsided, like, oh, well, we work at a safety net uh, system and we're never going to be able to afford the technology or uh, the patients that we serve aren't going to be able to get access to the right technology. When in reality, that's almost always the easy part. The technology is almost always the easiest part of the equation because you, you buy it, right? And like you can find funding, you can get the equipment, the hardware, the software, whatever it is. It's the people and the process that are very, very difficult to change. And I think that was an eye-opening uh, moment for me when I started to look through that lens of saying, let's just pretend the technology is the easy part. And we'll throw that part out there and say, great, we'll come back to that. Whereas the people in the process are really, really hard to affect. And so if you think about it from a people standpoint, a problem like connectivity, cool. I can give everybody a Wi-Fi router and a laptop. Uh, now what? And so it's kind of akin to, well, I give everybody a car who doesn't have the means to get routine transportation or regular transportation. But if they don't know how to drive the car, it's just going to sit there and they're not going to really know what to do with it. And I look at technology in that same vein and that the technology is, again, kind of the easy part. And it's how do I make sure that once they do have access to that technology, that they know how to use it in a manner where they're having the outcome that we desire and that hopefully they desire too. And that comes down to usability and it comes down to accessibility. And in a lot of instances, it comes down to literacy. And so when I think about connectivity for patients, it's really a multi-pronged approach in that um, the connectivity itself, the hardware, the software, that is certainly a part of the equation. And we need to do better at identifying who those individuals are, right? Because healthcare systems have long glossed over that fact, right? In that, okay, patients are, you know, out there, they have access to the internet. If they don't, they can go to a library or something like that. When in reality, it's it's not quite that simple. And we've never really looked into it. And I think on that note, there's a paper, Amy Sheehan and a, a group of folks um, published an article back in, uh, I think, 2020, maybe 2019 in Nature that started to look at uh, digital access as a super social determinant of health. 
right? And so you have all these different social determinants and then uh, you look at what those are, right? So transportation, food, insecurity, connectivity, social connectivity, all of those things are so much easier if you have access to the internet, right? Like how do you stay socially connected without the internet in 2022? It's a different environment. Are you writing letters? Like, what are you, what are you doing? I mean, phone calls, I suppose, but that has become uh, really not the primary means of communication for so many people. And so if you don't have access to that, you live almost in a different world. And so thinking about how that impacts all of these social drivers of health, it really makes sense that this is a super social driver of health. It impacts all of the other ones. And so thinking about connectivity, not as just uh, an attribute of a patient or a person that comes in contact with the healthcare system, but actually as a driver of health, as a social determinant of health, really kind of changed the narrative around connectivity. It's crucial that we start to think about connectivity as something that has a huge impact on, on a patient's healthcare whether it's access, engagement, outcomes, you name it. But then a step above that is, okay, we get them connectivity. Do they know how to use it, right? And so digital literacy becomes another hugely crucial component of this in that I think we've relied on the school systems um, to some extent, but I think that there's a huge portion of the population, again, the people who really need access to healthcare, what's their outlet? And, and so I think you're starting to see this change happening. And, and fortunately, we've had legislation in place over the past couple of years that's really emphasized that, uh, you know, the Infrastructure Act having a huge portion of funding that goes towards specifically digital literacy and digital access. And so I think you're starting to see that emphasis kind of sweep across society. And now it's starting to hit healthcare systems. And we're, we're starting to see a little bit more light shown on, on these particular issues that affect our patients' lives. And so I think the connectivity and the literacy taken together are, are going to be a really crucial part of how we think about access to healthcare moving forward. And then in terms of the provider piece of this, um, things got flipped around pretty good in 2020 uh, in a lot of ways. And I think one of the ways was that we introduced some new modalities of uh, patient care delivery. And so I, I published an article uh, with a couple of folks, um, Matt Sakamoto um, and Aditi Joshi out in um, Penn. And, um, you know, we looked at how many residents were getting uh, training for telemedicine. And this was oh, kind of pre-pandemic. And it was like nothing, right? I mean, it was a very, very small amount, which is really interesting because this isn't a new thing thing, right? Yeah. Telemedicine's been around for decades. It just never made the cut, right? It never bubbled up to the top of a really packed curriculum where we could say, okay, this is something I got to teach you in the next three years, four years, however long your residency training is. And so that has started to change too, in that um, we have providers who got thrust into these new modalities of care and felt really helpless. And I'll tell you, when you're trying to deliver care, and, and there's a lot of pressure that comes with that, right? You, you want to make sure that you're getting the right objective data to, to make a good clinical decision. And if you don't feel comfortable in that setting, you're going to feel that the quality of the clinical care you're delivering is being degraded. And that's the, it's extrapolated that it must be the modality that isn't working not necessarily the training that is lacking. And so I think there was a disconnect there for a little while. 
and some of the larger, you know, medicine, uh, internal medicine societies, ACP predominantly started to understand this very early on and, and put together a really nice curriculum. It's really hard to train physicians on something new once they're in clinical practice. It's yeah. just really hard. There's a lot of ingrained behaviors and habits that are just tough to break. And so while I, I think we still need to emphasize that, that training needs to happen at a very local level. It needs to be emphasized within clinics, needs to be emphasized by operational leadership, uh, by physician leadership at healthcare systems saying that if our providers don't feel good doing this, don't have a good experience, it's going to translate into poor outcomes. It's going to translate into worsened access because what will happen is I've seen this happen dozens of times. A provider will see a patient over uh, a video visit and not feel like they're getting the information they need and say, wow, we got to just have you come in person, right? And so now you're adding an extra visit. It's a stress to the patient. It's a stress to the provider. When in reality, if that provider had the right tools and the right skill set, they probably could have done it all in one visit or at least found a way to seamlessly plug that modality into a continuum of care that would have been you know, better for uh, access and cost and outcomes. And so I think it's really a, a multifaceted approach to think about healthcare delivery is changing in terms of the modalities that are available. And so we need to make sure that we're bringing patients and providers along for the ride. And, and that's a, a big part of what we looked into with uh, the publication that we put out a couple months back. I think it's great you did that. At, you know, at the high tech center for us, we've spent a lot of time talking about the patient side of the people, um, maybe not enough on the provider side in terms of how we best support them. I mean, having done that publication and, and what you've observed thus far, are you seeing appropriate, sufficient weight to move um, the educational field um, forward for providers um, at this stage? Do you think there's that understanding and a mindset I think, it's, for that. I, I think it's getting there. You know, I think especially on the end of providers that are starting their training and, and coming into the field, uh, both the AAMC and the ACGME have put out guidelines around, um, you know, what they expect medical students and residents to be capable of when it comes to telemedicine specifically. So they have specific milestones in place around uh, different elements of care delivery over multiple virtual modalities. And so I think they've, they've seen this, they, they see the gap there in the education, and they're starting to put in place the things that programs will need to build this into curriculum, right? Because they're not going to build it into their curriculum unless the ACGM or the AAAMC puts milestones out there so that it can be standardized. And so now that that's in place, which is pretty recent, really in the last probably six to 12 months for both of those organizations, now it's going to start to mature and it's going to start to find its way into these different programs and it'll take months to years really but i think that's great on the front end on on the other side of things i don't know it, it's there isn't necessarily any sort of standard you know the board for internal medicine or family medicine has not addressed uh you know making sure that the competencies around virtual care delivery is is standardized um and so i think that's something to watch for and something that will likely need to happen at some point. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that we've been thinking about, um, obviously like others is, you know, COVID had both upsides and downsides, you know, it really was a moment of true innovation and transformation. And when we talk about virtual care, 
um, that probably wouldn't have happened, right, if we hadn't had this major pandemic and the shutting down of all in-person services. Mm -hmm. So from your perspective, what are some of the upsides you're thinking about in terms of innovation um, and how it's hopefully will support health equity going forward? Yeah, I think uh, for me personally, it was it's almost comical that I went into clinical informatics fellowship in that I wanted to do uh, really emphasize my career around telehealth. And then the pandemic happened like six months later. And that's like all we're talking about. Wow. It was like, wow, well, OK, that worked out um, <laughs> almost too well. Um, unfortunately, it had to happen under the, the backdrop of a global pandemic. But other upsides that I, I see is that just the technology and, and the ability to expand access was uh, brought to the forefront, right? I think that we've started to understand that this isn't just a neat technology that can be used for uh, extremely rural populations, right? Like this has extreme benefit in a densely urban setting and that there are barriers to accessing care. And, and there are costs associated with it that we don't track. We don't track how much does it cost for you to get to the clinic. We don't track how much time is lost in an hourly wage job to get to an appointment. We don't track childcare. We don't, we don't measure any of that stuff. It just comes in as a no-show or a late cancel. And it, it comes in as almost punitive towards the patient who's you know having to go through that process. And so what I think we found is that the flip side of that is that we can eliminate all of those barriers with the modality that we choose, whether it's a video visit, whether it's something just over the phone, or whether it's something asynchronous. We can eliminate those types of barriers uh, if we build systems that can accommodate that. And so I think that's the biggest upside is that we've started to look at telehealth and virtual care in a little bit of a different light as opposed to um, you know, a neat technology that has some uh, niche use cases to, boy, this is a tool that can really crack open access in some, in some very profound ways. And so I think that's one of the biggest upsides I see. And, and with that, I'd, I'd add that the other upside is that it, it's, it's shown a light on the, the field of virtual care, if you will, in that uh, payers and legislators started paying attention. And so I think those are two huge leaps forward for virtual care in that uh, payers are taking this more seriously. There's more outcomes data that's coming out seemingly every week now, and it's going to be hard for payers to ignore that for much longer. And that if you can do it cheaper and if you can do it with the same or better outcomes, they're going to pay for it. And I think as we shift towards value-based care becoming really a prominent focal point of care delivery across our, you know, a lot of the larger healthcare systems, how does it fit into that, right? If I can do these really efficient, low-touch visits or asynchronous type of communication with a patient around chronic disease management, um, you know, the reimbursement model changes pretty dramatically once you start looking at a value-based care system. And so I think that is another part. And then the legislators piece is a work in progress, but at least it's in the conversation. And that over the last two years, um, I've had the chance to meet with several legislators around a topic that they've never thought about before. They've never talked about. And now, in many instances, it's becoming one of the prominent uh, focal points of the legislative session 
uh, specifically around, you know, different states and, and how Medicaid is reimbursing for audio only or asynchronous visits. Uh, it's becoming something that uh, organizations are really taking notice of and, and starting to move forward and make progress that will be hopefully a bit more permanent than it has been in the past. Yeah, that's what's exciting, right, is we're really moving towards a whole new model of how people can access services. Um, and it brings a lot of questions, but um, the fact that it's on people's radar in a whole new way is is really exciting. Yeah. But there are concerns, um, and we talked to health centers about some of those concerns. So I'd love for you to kind of share your top concerns, downsides, um, or things to pay attention to as we move telehealth forward to ensure we're maintaining equity and access and quality for patients. Yeah, there's a couple of downsides, unfortunately. You know, I think anytime a system or, or a, uh, you know, a part of society like healthcare moves fast, there's going to be some problems. And, and we had to move really fast in the pandemic. And so, you know, you can look at this at a, a system level, you know, a specific healthcare system. In many instances, they had to put together a, a video visit or a telehealth process in a matter of weeks or months, days even for some. And when you do that, you, you're really just cobbling things together to make sure that you can take care of patients in a crisis, which is what we were all in. And then I think what happens after that is what I found is it's it's easier to implement new things into a system than it is to change them retrospectively or, or prospectively after they're already in the system. And so I think that's where we're at now is that we did a lot of things really quickly. And um, I don't want to say without thinking it through, but there wasn't time, right? I don't think there was time to examine the process and go through the governance process like we normally would have. Um, and because of that, there are some downstream consequences. And one of those is that uh, how equitably is telehealth and virtual care being delivered? And this was something that we were weary of from the beginning at Hennepin Healthcare, being a safety net organization, being an organization that had thought about how to leverage virtual care previously and really couldn't find a great way to fit it in because of certain barriers that existed within our patient population, but also within, you know, a payment structure. And so when we went forward with it, we, we wanted to monitor those issues very carefully. And so we started doing that right from the onset. And I think that's what a lot of the paper was, is just kind of uh, making observations along the way of where we thought the problems were and then where the problems actually ended up being. And so I think we we point a light at some of those problems, but certainly not all of those problems. And thinking about this in, in big picture sense, what I really worry about is that with all of this great technology and all of these great processes to improve access to care, if they aren't accessible to everyone, we start to build a dichotomous healthcare system. And we've had a dichotomous healthcare system before. I mean, if you needed to be uh, hospitalized in like the early century and early 1900s, you would go to a sanatorium or a hospital where the mortality rate was through the roof. If you were wealthy and had the means to have a doctor come to your home, your outcomes were much better. I mean, you weren't exposed to any of the other elements that, um, you know, produce the morbidity and mortality within a healthcare system in our hospital. 
And so I worry that sometimes if we're not really careful about what we're building, we're going to go right back to that, where if you have the means and the digital literacy and the digital access, I can get healthcare from home, right? I mean, all the way across the spectrum, whether it's monitoring my heart rhythm on my watch uh, or getting hospitalized for uh, you know, a low acuity problem in my home with remote patient monitoring in a hospital at home program. I don't have to go see a physical healthcare system. Whereas if I don't have that, I'm very much stuck in the old model. And so healthcare systems can't support both really, really well. And so where will the attention shift to? And right now I see the attention shifting away from the old model and, and I worry about what happens if we're not bringing everyone along to the new model. And so that's, I think, the biggest downside right now. However, I'm really optimistic about the work that a lot of groups are doing, that a lot of really bright people are doing in the field to make sure that we're studying this in a manner of saying, hey, here's what's happening, right? And, and then it's becoming quite predictable who is using this and who's not using this. And it's not okay. Right, we should not be able to predict what type of healthcare you choose to get, um, you know, based on modality of care delivery, based on the color of your skin, based on your income, based on where you live. That shouldn't be a predictor, but it is right now. And so I think that's where the the work lies ahead for healthcare systems and and really legislators too in making sure that we're addressing this. One of the things you talked about just now that I, I think caught my attention, um, and I'm paraphrasing it, but is, you know, in the rapid development of virtual care, there were some, you know, perhaps imperfect things put in place, all with, you know, best intentions, but the reality of inertia that just happens in um, any system, you know, clinical system, other business systems, right? There's this inertia now that those systems are in place that there's a, a steeper curve to maybe adjust them um, and optimize them going forward. Um, you know, that that really resonates to me as a real risk yeah. um, for organizations right now. It, it totally is. And, and it's not just for virtual care, right? I think that yeah. um, equity has kind of become a little bit of a buzzword and that everyone has, you know, an equity team or a DEI program at their healthcare system or hospital. Um, but I think what it really comes down to, and, and I think it's okay that it's it's a buzzword, right? In that as long as people are thinking about it, I think that's the, the primary initiative here in that whether it's a dashboard that monitors, okay, if we're delivering uh, virtual care, how are we doing across different socioeconomic groups? How are we doing uh, across different racial groups? Uh, and making sure that there aren't you know, wild disparities that are starting to present themselves. As long as we're looking at that, I think that's a good first step, right? I think the intention is there. It's what we do after that, uh, that I think is really important, that we don't just come up with reasons for this and say, that's insurmountable, or that's not what patients want. I hear that a lot, is that that's, why, that's not what those patients want. And I don't think that's a fair assessment. I mean, I have a lot of patients who probably don't want to take their lisinopril for their hypertension, but it's my job as a clinician to help them make an educated decision about it and so that their outcomes are on par with those who maybe do want to take the lisinopril for their hypertension. And so I don't think it's fair to say, 
That's not what patients want. And that's why we're seeing these discrepancies in care delivery and different modalities. And so I think it, it's what comes after the dashboard is going to be really um, something to watch for at different healthcare systems. Absolutely. And, you know, I think right now in this moment, there's still this recovery of the healthcare workforce, um, uh, you know, having lived through this pandemic and providing services in a very intensive and stressful time. So that bandwidth to innovate, to disrupt um, is really challenging um, at this period of time. Yeah. I, I'm curious, you know, Thinking just to Hennepin and the environment you're working in at your health center, are there any things you can share with health centers in terms of how you've kind of moved out of that, you know, stress environment you're working in, um, staff have been overworked, et cetera, to think about some of these things and be more strategic going forward on how, you know, again, how do you move beyond the data that shows we have inequity here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, at, at our healthcare system, equity is really baked into the vision and the mission. And I think that's, uh, you know, a great place to start. Obviously, I don't think that's going to fit for every healthcare system. Um, but I think that's, that's important to think about is, is the why. why. Why are we doing this in the first place? And I think for a safety net organization like ours, that's always been core to our mission is, the why is because there are patients in our communities that struggle with access to healthcare, that struggle with uh, outcomes uh, in various chronic conditions, uh, that struggle with substance use, that struggle with mental health, and and how do we build a healthcare system that serves those patients best? And so, if that's in your mission of what you're hoping to achieve as a healthcare system, I think that helps rally the troops a little bit. Um, for places where maybe that's not as central to the mission, I think you approach it like any other QI project in that you find your gaps and you start to understand what's causing those gaps. We have a what should be happening and what's actually happening and what's the disparity or what's the discrepancy between these two things. Then you start to break it down and do your normal problem solving approaches. And I mean, look at it is the same way as it would be, you know, a CAUTI or a CLAPSI problem that you're trying to solve in a hospital and just approach it from a QI lens. And, you know, it, you don't even have to say that it's equity work. You can just say that we are trying to serve our patient population uh, in a manner that looks like we think it should look right. And that, uh, we have an idea of how healthcare delivery over virtual care should look. It should look exactly the same as healthcare delivery over in-person. Uh, and in many instances, it, it doesn't. And so I think that's maybe another way to look at it is it's, it's another QI problem that we're trying to solve. And if you apply the right problem-solving techniques to it, um, I think it can get people rolling in the right direction rather than looking at it as this big, massive problem um, really intimidating equity problem that uh, has roots in uh, racism and bias and all sorts of things that are hard to talk about and should be talked about. But I think if you're trying to get the ball rolling, you'll get there once you start the problem solving, right? Once you start to say, okay, some of these gaps are here because of this. And boy, if we examine this, there's a piece of this that's revolving around race. And so let's unpack that 
more. Let's start to understand this. And so I think it's kind of a backdoor into uh, if your healthcare system is not ready to talk about those problems, using QI and problem solving to, to get to- Yeah, the using the processes, the methodologies you use yep. all the time. Yep. And, and not thinking idea. you have to rethink this. Um, use the tools you're very comfortable with yeah. to apply to this problem. Yeah, that, I think that's helpful guidance for people. So you recently published this evidence-based roadmap for equitable telehealth. Um, I, 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 th I'm, I think you've touched on that a little bit in your comments thus far, but is there anything else you can share about what this roadmap um, provides in terms of um, additional insight for health centers as they think about um, this work going forward? Yeah, I think this was, you know, I, I think some of this is transferable to any healthcare system. Some of this was specific to our community and our healthcare system. And, and I think like anything that's rooted in operations, that's going to be the case more often than not. And so I think if, if you start to break down the, the issues that you're finding or the problems that you're discovering and try to better understand the individual pieces of them, I think you can start to build your own roadmap. And I think that a lot of the things that we've hit on today, whether it's connectivity or uh, provider development or um, you know community engagement and awareness, things like that, those are all things that uh, need to be incorporated into the roadmap. But the specific bullets below that are probably going to be you know, individualized to a, a specific healthcare system. And so I think just starting to unpack the process from end to end is really, really useful. And one of the examples I'll give is around scheduling and the language that you use when you schedule a patient. And I've mentioned a little bit, I think we should be more prescriptive with modality um, when in reality we're not right now. Yeah. And so I think when you start thinking about who's calling in to schedule, if you just offer them, uh, you know, the option to say, oh, would you like this to be in person or virtual? Well, that is a really kind of a, a loaded phrase in that you're probably never going to get the person who's never used virtual care to say yes to that statement, right? And especially if they don't speak English, because if I have a Somali speaking patient on the phone and I say, would you like in person or virtual? I don't know if they even if that translates, I don't know what that really translates into. Right. Uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And so unpacking things at a very granular level and saying, boy, the words that we're using really matter in this. If we really want to include other patient populations that aren't necessarily leveraging uh, this modality of care delivery yet. And so I think that's one of the anecdotes I look back to in terms of this process of going through everything is we listen to dozens of call recordings from our connection center, our scheduling center. And we started to hear a pattern of when the, the connection center agent was introducing the concept of telehealth or virtual care, it kind of fell on, you know, uh, uh what? <laughs> okay. Uh, no, I just want to schedule a regular appointment. You know, they didn't really understand what we were getting at. And that's on us. That's on us to bring our patients along in a way that is uh, transferable and translatable uh, to a healthcare experience that they are expecting. And so that takes a little bit of extra work for different groups of patients. And I think that's something that we're a little bit more cognizant of now than we were before. I love that. I mean, just very closely observing how are we doing things and what's the bias we're introducing in terms of our process, mm -hmm. right? Um, and thinking about those biases and what are the outcomes based on, on those processes and how they're designed. Mm -hmm. 
I think that's really informative and really resonates to me in terms of, again, hearing the stories of health centers putting these things together, again, in a very rapid fashion and maybe not having the time to think through, you know, how do we develop systems that are going to be equitable for all of our patients? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, think, I think that's really helpful. So my final question for you, Ryan, is, you know, you seem to have be the type of person that's always looking to what's next um, and how you solve these kinds of challenges, um, both at the clinic level and the systems level. So what are you thinking about next in your work to address um, these challenges and where do you plan to put your focus going forward? Yeah, uh, I think that's the hard part is always focusing on one or two things as opposed to 10 or 20 things. But um, if I had to pick two things right now, one is something that I've touched on in this conversation a couple of times, kind of dancing around the topic of digital literacy and digital access and healthcare systems starting to take matters into their own hands in terms of helping patients. And so, you know, the concept of building a team of digital navigators is not a new concept. I think it's new for a lot of healthcare systems, but the idea of having a digital navigator is been around for a little while. I think we're starting to understand the value of those digital navigators within a healthcare system more than ever. We become super reliant on patient portals for access to care, engagement of care, refilling your meds, whatever. It it is becoming a really central process to participating in healthcare. And we've, uh, for the most part, offloaded training patients on that, uh, you know, technology to providers and nurses, which is not the right group of people. And what that leads to is a lot of frustrated nurses and providers. I'm an outlier. I love talking to patients about my chart. I think it's the best. If I can get a new patient on my chart, send a message back and forth, show them how to do their meds, all this stuff. It's great. I'm the dork, right? I'm the guy who's like willing to invest that time. I That's not all providers and it's certainly not all nurses, right? Our, our attention is spread pretty thin right now. And I think as you alluded to, there's, there's a lot of burnout right now and adding on those things to nurses and providers is not the right answer. And so who does that work? And so I think that's where the digital navigators come in. And so what I want to start doing, and we've started doing over the past several months, is building out a program for digital navigators. And there's some really, really smart people. Jorge Rodriguez out in Brigham Women's is one of the ones who's published on building a, a digital navigator program already, um, kind of leading the way with this work. And so we're, we're following suit, and, and we hope to have uh, a really robust platform for digital navigators to help patients. And not only to help patients, but as I mentioned earlier, collecting that data, right? Starting to look at digital access and digital literacy as a social driver of health. You know, put something on that little wheel in Epic that shows all the social determinants, digital access and literacy should be on that wheel. And so we're starting to think about it in those terms. And so once we have that data, now we can start making referrals to programs that will provide digital access have referrals to programs that provide digital literacy in some really robust ways. I mean, there's a lot of organizations out there that do this really, really well, but how do patients find them? And so I think that's where the healthcare system can come in and start making referrals. Uh, The other area that I'm super interested in is uh, I've started to have this mindset of that. I don't think there's anything more inequitable in healthcare than a scheduled visit. And that we are making this assumption that 
our time as a provider, as a healthcare system is somehow inherently more valuable than the patient's time and that they got to come to us at a very specific window of time. And if you miss it, or if you cancel late, it's viewed as, uh, you know, almost punitive and that we have a column on our schedule that says likelihood of a no-show, right? And so we've, we've already labeled that patient in a way that says, and you're not going to show up, but I don't know why, right? In many instances, or I think I know why, but uh, it really comes down to the fact that we're trying to plug uh, a person and their schedule into our schedule. And I think that that is inherently inequitable. And so with the rise of virtual care, I think it provides us a ton of outlets to start to combat that mindset. And that if I can have an on-demand care system that used to be, you come to the emergency room or you come to an urgent care and it was like on-demand-ish if you're okay with a six hour wait. Um, but I can change that now. I can have a clinician be anywhere, right? They can be up at their cabin in Northern Minnesota, uh, you know, taking a break from the hospital, but still being productive and, and helping patients. And the patients can be anywhere, but they don't have to necessarily be at home what we've thought about is, well, where are high utilizers for kind of low acuity healthcare? In many instances for us as a safety net, they're at things like homeless shelters. They're at things like, uh, you know, high rise, uh, low income housing complexes, and that we work with our emergency medicine services or EMS platform and, and say, where are your calls? Where are your rigs going out to more often than not for these awesome. low acuity things? And unfortunately, it's the point now where 911 is getting just overrun to the point where they don't have rigs to send out. And they say, I'm sorry, I know you called 911. We will get there eventually, but it's going to be a little while. What if there was another option? What if there was, say, a kiosk with some peripherals to get some objective data and a camera, and I could connect you to a provider instantly, right? How does that change the paradigm of access for healthcare? Because we've trained people to say, if you want care, if you really want to get care, you should call 911 because someone's going to show up and someone's going to take care of you. It's not going to be fun. It's not going to be convenient. You're going to get hauled away in a truck and then sit in an emergency room for like 12 hours, but you'll get care as opposed to trying to call and get an appointment. And maybe that works for you. Maybe it doesn't. And maybe it's in a week. And so I think we have to start thinking about how do we leverage on-demand platforms to really meet patients where they're at? And so that's an area that's going to take a lot of uh, operational change and culture change, both on a provider and a patient standpoint too. Uh, but I'm excited to see where that goes. Amazing, Ryan. I think you've just named like three problems that could be three different careers to solve and address. <laughs> Job security. Great. <laughs> so I, I think you, you've got your work ahead of you um, and you've, picked a career that's going to keep you entertained for a long time. Well, you know, I think this conversation has just been incredibly thoughtful, provocative. I think it's going to provide people some new lenses and questions to be asking about how they proceed with this work and ensuring equity for their patients. So I really appreciate you giving us an hour of your time. I know we could have even spent more with you. So okay. I hope we stay in touch. I know we'll be following your research and I hope we stay in touch um, because I think um, the health centers um, through high tech would love to hear more from you. So thank you so much. Thank you, Natalie. It's been fun. Thank you. 
The High Tech Center is a HRSA Bureau of Primary Healthcare funded National Training and TA Partner, or NTAP. We thank HRSA for this funding and our team at JSI and Westat for their work supporting health centers to better utilize health IT and EHRs to be data-driven organizations that provide comprehensive, high-quality, and well-documented care. For more information and resources, please visit www.hitechcenter.org. That's www.hitechcenter.org. Hitechcenter.org.